From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll be talking with our greatest Iraq reporter, Patrick Coburn, about ISIS and the failing states in the Mideast. Also, we have news about the break-free climate protests happening around the world. Zoe Carpenter will report. First up, Hillary will have to do something different to beat Donald Trump. Appealing for moderation is not going to work this year. That's what Bruce Shapiro says. He's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and executive director of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma. It's a global resource center and think tank for journalists covering violence, conflict, and tragedy. He's co-author of the book Legal Lynching, The Death Penalty in America's Future with the Reverend Jesse Jackson and Jesse Jackson Jr. And his most recent book is Shaking the Foundations, 200 Years of Investigative Journalism in America. He also teaches investigative journalism at Yale. He lives in New Haven, but we reached him today in County Clare, Ireland. Bruce Shapiro, welcome to the program. Very glad to be here. So Donald Trump has taken over the Republican Party, but you say his electoral appeal, at least at this point, remains pretty narrow. A lot of our friends aren't so sure about that. Uh, Your evidence comes from the primaries. What are the primaries, Joe? Presidential primaries, even the most intense presidential primary like this one, truth be told, is an affair that appeals only most of the time to the most motivated voters. And that is absolutely true this year. If you look, for instance, at Connecticut, where I vote, Trump, it's true, absolutely shattered Cruz and Kasich, the last uh, Republicans left standing at that point. But he absolutely smashed them with a very small electorate, with 123,000 votes in a state of more than 2 million people. In, with more than 400,000 registered Republicans. So you're really still talking at this point about Trump having an appeal to a fairly narrow, angry, resentful electorate that sees him, hears him as symbolizing something. It, the same thing is true state after state. Indiana, the, the end of the uh, Republican primary process, the same thing. Um, Yeah, he did a little better than Mitt Romney, but in a state where 4 million plus people could have participated as Republican voters, uh, he got 500 something thousand votes. Um, You know, he is still a factional candidate. People who feel angry at what they see as the privileges accruing to minorities and immigrants, people often who feel economically displaced and who feel angry as well at elites in the media, elites in the political system. This is a permanent, enduring feature of American politics. And there's not a lot of evidence yet that Trump has found a way to go past that, at least not in the primary vote thus far. Okay, Trump supporters are a small number of uh, people given the total voting population or even the total number of Republicans. And the primaries have been, as you put it, spectacularly low turnout events. Are you saying there's no way Trump can win in November? The path for Trump 
to win is very specific and very narrow. And it, it requires him essentially to turn the general election, which usually attracts much larger turnout, into a primary, to so turn off voters, to so turn off people across the spectrum, uh, so disgust voters that in unprecedented numbers, people stay home. What Trump can, wants to bank on, I think, is a campaign of such protracted hideousness, such ugliness, leaving in key swing states that resentment faction as a pivotal factor. That is, the, I think, the real danger. And what that says to me is that anyone, whether a Hillary supporter, a Bernie supporter, or for that matter, Republicans, who wants to, who actually want to defeat Trump, need to look at voter participation, voter turnout as the key this fall. Your new piece at thenation.com shocked a lot of us when you declared that Trump is running a campaign not just of racism and resentment. You say Trump is also running a campaign of ideas. What, what exactly are these ideas? Well, look, it's clearly not the, 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 the ideas are not the ideas of a wall or, or the ideas, uh, you, you can't call it an idea that Muslims should be barred from the United States. I mean, that is, that's a fascist nationalist idea, and I suppose we could claim that. But really the I, idea that he is banking on and winning on uh, is that the Republican Party, that the Republican electorate, he, he would argue, and his campaign implicitly argued, has changed. That the what have been taken for the last generation as, here's what it means to be a Republican, which is essentially agreeing with Ronald Reagan. Do we agree with Ronald Reagan on, uh, on, on uh, social conservatism, you know, hatred of feminism, hatred of gay rights, etc.? Do we, and, 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 and uh, with the evangelicals on that, do we agree with Ronald Reagan on robust military spending and American unilateral muscle flexing around the world? And do we agree with Ronald Reagan on deregulation, shrinking the state, unleashing uh, unregulated global capital as the greatest force for good? If we agree with those things, we're Republicans. Well, um, the truth is what Trump understands and what his rivals this year did not, is that that era is past. That the huge inequality and economic displacements of the last year, few years have uh, unleashed, it should be said, first by Bill Clinton, who was trying to ape Reagan in a democratic way in the 90s, um, that, that the forces of globalization have so displaced many Americans that whether they end up on the right or the left, the idea of unfettered capital is no longer quite so appealing. Um, social conservatism, its day is past. Marriage equality is the law of the land. Most Americans don't care about it. We're in a libertarian age where the war on drugs is seen as a bipartisan a problem needing bipartisan fixing, etc. And as for military spending, George Bush fixed that with the Iraq war. Um, you know, this is a, we are now in a, Trump would argue a period for a new nationalist, nativist, isolationist uh, republicanism. And, of course, he already has taken several different stands on the minimum wage, on global trade, and so on. He is not 
an adherent of any of these views. And look, from a historic point of view, Trump is not wrong. There was a period in the early to mid-80s when Reagan Republicans solidified their control over the Republican Party by purging, and I remember this well, by purging um, all those non-Reaganite Republicans from various state parties. Well, that was what it has meant to be a Republican for a generation, but Trump understood that that is over. Cruz, Kasich, Jeb Bush, none of them did. If any of those Republicans, if any of this year's alternative candidates had stepped out in front on globalization or stepped out in front on, let's say, abortion rights and said, you know, we're a big party, we can accommodate argument on this, uh, Trump would not have the traction that he did. They all, the rest of them all thought it's still 1985. Trump understood this is 2016. Okay, Reaganism is over. Very powerful argument, at, at least in the candidacy of Trump. And this provides a, a golden opportunity for the Democrats. Hillary clearly has been thinking about what to do in this situation after Trump triumphed in Indiana, she announced a new campaign theme. She said, quote, let's get off the red or the blue team. Let's get on the American team, close quote. The the blue team, that's that's the Democrats. That's the people she needs to vote for her. Why is she saying, let's get off the blue team? Look, I think uh, Hillary Clinton is making a historic mistake. She's doing it because what Trump has set up for her is what, in my nation piece, I call the the Clinton comfort zone. Um, You know, going back to 1992, the Bill Clinton electoral strategy and the core belief of many of those still closest to the Clintons is that the Democratic Party of the 1970s and 80s erred by swinging too far to the left. And the only way you can win is by essentially co-opting moderate Republican positions or even not so moderate Republican positions on issues like uh, crime, uh, hence the crime bill of 1994, on issues like national security, hence Senator Clinton and Secretary Clinton's uh, more hawkish interventionist stance compared with Barack Obama, the vote for the Iraq war and so on. The pitch to the right is the classic Clintonian move. And Hillary Clinton finds herself in a familiar place now making that pitch. This is a a grave historic error. The lessons of the Bernie Sanders campaign, the lessons of the Trump campaign, the lessons of this strange political year are that we have an electorate that is focused on inequality, uh, that pitching to the right isn't going to fix that. We have an electorate that has been, that has suffered a young electorate, especially that has suffered repeated betrayals uh, of the social contract in, in the form of the economic crisis of 2008 uh, and the Iraq war. And those folks are looking for a strong, principled assertion of the social contract. That's what they've gotten accustomed to under Barack Obama, whatever his flaws and errors. He is a candidate who has consistently uh, presented us with a set of guiding principles about how Americans relate to one another, what we owe to one another as a society, like health care. 
and, and has had a kind of consistent principle. That's what people are used to, whether right or left. They're looking for it in Trump. They're looking for it on the Democratic side. And I think uh, Hillary Clinton will make a big mistake if she seems to swing opportunistically with the wind left to right over the next six months. It will cost her on the left with Sanders supporters and progressive Democratic voters generally. It will cost her dearly with the very voters whom she now uh, you know, hopes to lure since those Republican voters, moderate Republican voters, are skeptical by and large of the Clintons in general, um, partly for uh, partly for very good reasons, the historic opportunism uh, of the Clintons, partly for because of smears like Benghazi, which is how I view it anyway. Um, but you know that electorate, the Republican electorate, is going to stay home, or they're just going to split their ticket and not vote the presidential line. Republicans are not going to elect. Hillary Rodham Clinton or Bernie Sanders president. It is going to take a high turnout, high registration, democratic, progressive, young and old intergenerational uh, immigrant and African-American high turnout kind of campaign, a very progressive campaign to motivate people and beat Trump. Bruce Shapiro his article on the campaign was number one on the most popular list at thenation.com. Bruce, thanks for talking with us today. Very glad to be here. Over the last two weeks, environmentalists around the world have been staging a series of direct actions against fossil fuel development projects. The actions go under the name Break Free. For that story, we turn to Zoe Carpenter. She's associate Washington editor of The Nation. Before that, she worked for Rolling Stone, and she's appeared on MSNBC, CNN, and other media outlets. Zoe Carpenter, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, John. Well, give us a sense of the scope and the size of the break-free protests in the past week. Well, the organizers are calling this the largest global civil disobedience against fossil fuels ever. Um, and, you know, it's a little hard to quantify, and there perhaps haven't been that many other organized protests over the global scale to compare it to. But um, we're certainly seeing huge numbers of, of people all around the world on, I believe, five or six different continents so, for example, 10,000 people in, um, in the Philippines marched against a new coal-fired power plant. So that's a huge crowd. Um, we had more than 1,000 in D.C. over the weekend calling for the Obama administration to stop drilling in, in offshore areas. So it really spans um, a range of communities and, and people. And I saw some amazing pictures of a march in the UK on uh, that country's largest coal mine. That's right. Um, so we had, I believe, more than a thousand people there too, risking arrest and shutting down the production in in that coal mine in the UK. We had uh, activists in Australia, or kai activists, if you will, in uh, kayaks and sailboats on stand-up paddleboards, even or surfboards, um, blockading a port to prevent ships carrying coal from entering, and then other people uh, on railways that were connected to the port as well. We record our program in L.A., and here in L.A., over the weekend, it was on Sunday, almost 2,000 people marched on City Hall demanding no more oil drilling 
in LA for for a hundred years. We've had oil wells uh, all around the city, and uh, two dozen activists on Sunday afternoon staged a sit-in at the entrance to that Aliso Canyon natural gas uh, storage facility. Uh, where there had been that massive methane leak for months into the atmosphere. Uh, the demonstrators called on Jerry Brown to keep it closed uh, permanently. That's what's happening here in our town. Uh, tell us a little more about who's organizing this protest uh, around the world and, and why, it's ha- why they're doing it now. Well, I think, you know, climate change has been happening for a long time and the knowledge of um, the seriousness of the threat isn't new, but we're starting to feel the effects of climate change much more acutely. So the uh, wildfire in around Fort McMurray in Canada is just one example of the devastation that we're feeling. That fire and others in that sort of northern circle of forests that goes around Canada um, and Russia and northern Europe, for example, um, that, that increasing fire threat Um, has been linked to climate change, and we can expect that it's going to get worse. We have massive bleaching in the uh, Great Barrier Reef that scientists are very worried about, and um, we've been able to see that in really dramatic new ways. And we've had successive months of um, record high temperatures. April was again another month that broke all previous records, and so far 2016 is on track to be the hottest year ever. So we have that sort of depressing context. And then we have um, the landmark climate deal that was made in Paris last winter in December, which many people took as a sign of progress. And yet there's really nothing binding in the agreement that assures that governments will actually keep their commitments. And there's great awareness that that climate deal is insufficient to the scale of the threat. So we're seeing this renewed activism both using the momentum from Paris to keep going forward, but also using uh, these increased, the increased damage from climate change um, and the knowledge that Paris is insufficient to, to push itself forward. Some of the big international environmental groups like Greenpeace and 350.org are doing some of the big organizing here, but um, the work on the ground is also being coordinated by, by local groups. And so it's environmental groups, but it's also groups that care about public health and groups that care about labor and groups that care generally about community safety and are worried about things like trains carrying very volatile shipments of crude oil through Um, communities near public housing developments, for example. So although there is certainly uh, a big focus on climate and and broad support from environmental groups, it's really a much more diverse coalition than that. And a lot of this is focused on keep it in the ground. I know that in not just in the Philippines, in Indonesia, uh, but mines all over the place, mines in in Brazil, in South Africa have been the the target of these protests. And as you mentioned, also the rail lines taking stuff out of those mines and uh, out of the oil fields. Yeah, I think if you want to try to understand the climate movement today, this idea that we should keep fossil fuels in the ground is the guiding principle in many ways of that climate movement. Um, And this is sort of based on the logic that Bill McKibben laid out in his groundbreaking 2012 story for Rolling Stone, Global Warming's Terrifying New Math was the title, I believe, um, where he pointed out that if we want to avoid this two degrees Celsius temperature increase that um, has been sort of set out as a benchmark above which we start to see the more catastrophic effects of climate change, um, we really have to, we, we can't just keep digging up and, and consuming 
the, fo- the fossil fuels that remain in, in the ground. And there has been some real controversy about this. Um, even on the left, there are some people who believe that uh, it's a better use of time to target demand for fossil fuels rather than the supply, so that we should put all our attention and energy into um, making our energy use more efficient to passing policies that um, cut down on demand as opposed to trying to constrict supply, which is really what the keep it in the ground movement is doing. I've noticed we're having an election here in the United States. How, how would you describe the debate over climate policy in the primaries? Well, what's really striking to me is that the debate is being driven in many ways by this younger generation of climate activists um, and these groups like 350.org, Greenpeace, um, and others who are out there on the campaign trail, especially in the Democratic race, and asking the presidential candidates um, very specific questions about their climate policies. So, for example, Hillary Clinton said she um, wanted to phase out the extraction of fossil fuels from on public lands, and that was in response to a, cl- a question posed to her on the campaign trail by an activist working with one of these groups. It's, you know, she might not have made that um, policy position if she hadn't been asked for it. So there's really, we're seeing um, serious demands and questions being raised by this movement that um, I think is really striking. So that's the positive. (laughs) The negative is that on, on the other side, on the Republican side, we're still debating the existence of climate change, not not to mention you know what we should do about it. So um, we see progress in some areas. We see this sort of renewed uprising of activism and people willing to use uh, civil disobedience as a tactic. Um, on the other hand, the actual political debate in this country is still very stuck at its most basic level. And what do you think is the most important thing that the federal government could do to slow climate change? We're talking here about Obama before he leaves office. Well, there's there's never going to be one single uh, policy or, or a magic bullet for climate change. Climate change is a problem that's um, we talk about as being created by one thing, which is you know carbon dioxide emissions, CO two emissions, but it's created by um, by many things. I mean, first of all, other greenhouse gases like methane, but a whole suite of human behaviors, the way that we get around, the way that we consume our food, the way that we live. And so we can we can have different policies that would tackle all those solutions. Certainly the clean power plan, which is um, tied up in a court battle now, would be one of the most enduring legacies of the Obama administration if it were to go forward. Um, he's also done some good things in terms of auto efficiency and and other and you know support for renewables trying to push that um, I think a lot of people don't know that the 2009 stimulus package was actually the biggest piece of legislative support for renewable energy in American history but what the these environmental groups are calling for with this breakthrough wave of protests is that the Obama administration also has a lot of power over what happens on public lands in yes. terms of extraction and so one of the significant things that they, he could do with his remaining time in office is to um, move away from allowing these public resources to be used for extractive activities. Yeah, I've read that about a quarter of all the coal, oil, and gas produced in the United States right now comes out of publicly owned lands, uh, which are leased to energy companies by the federal government. And uh, those leases could be could be curtailed, could be phased out, which is indeed what the demand is of the activists in uh, Washington this week. 
That's right. And there are some reasons to scrutinize the, this leasing, these leasing programs beyond just the climate implications. So the federal coal program, um, which largely occurs in Wyoming in the Powder River Basin, um, has been criticized for decades, actually, for being mismanaged, for charging below market rates on what is effectively taxpayer-owned coal to these big coal companies, and for running a non-competitive process where coal producers actually just get to um, basically select the tracts of federal land they want to mine, and then they have very cheap access to it. Um, so it's not just a question of that coal being bad for the planet, but also the fact that these are public resources, and the public... Um, either A, isn't getting to decide what happens to them, and B, isn't getting a fair return on on the resources there. Uh, let's talk about Hillary for uh, a minute. If you go to the uh, Hillary Clinton for President website, she has two major climate goals for her presidency. Number one, the U.S. will have more than half a billion solar panels installed by the end of Hillary Clinton's first term. And number two, the U.S. will generate enough clean, renewable energy to power every home in America within 10 years of Hillary Clinton taking office. These are very ambitious goals, but I notice there's nothing there about phasing out fossil fuel production on public lands and waters. Yeah, she hasn't made that a central part of her platform. And again, she only addressed that on the campaign trail uh, because it was brought up by an activist who directly confronted her um, and there was a, a videotape rolling. So that's that's the context in which she addressed the public lands issue. Um, you know, those are admirable policies. And she also has a suite of policies aimed at environmental justice that are especially important. Um, we have more awareness now about environmental justice issues in the wake of Flint, Michigan, um, and so I think that's an essential part of any climate platform. The clean energy stuff, um, again, that's sort of an effort to work on demand side policies uh, to create alternative sources of energy and to encourage their consumption. A lot of that varies by state right now. So we have places like Nevada where there's a real effort to squash the emerging renewable market um, in, in protection of the fossil fuel industries. So there's going to be a patchwork of progress regardless of who's elected in November. We've been talking about government. Are there signs that the energy industry itself is changing in response to all the protests? Well, certainly the energy industry is feeling increased pressure, and it's it's from the protests, and it's also from um, legal strategies. For example, the several investigations that have been opened into Exxon and, and whether that company misled shareholders and the public about its knowledge of climate change and the risks that it posed. We know from some recent reporting that the industry sees that litigation as a serious threat, and um, you know it remains to be seen whether there will be actually be charges that stick. But certainly the history of the tobacco litigation suggests that it takes a long time for this kind of litigation to stack up and that this is just the beginning. Zoe Carpenter, reader at thenation.com. Zoe, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. Now it's time to talk about the wars in the Mideast. And for that, we turn to Patrick Coburn. Seymour Hirsch calls him, quite simply, the best Western journalist at work in Iraq today. 
Patrick Coburn has worked as a Middle East correspondent for decades for The Independent and before that for The Financial Times. He's written four books on Iraq's recent history. He's won many awards, including the Orwell Prize for Journalism in 2009, and he's been named Foreign Affairs Journalist of the Year in 2014. He has a new book just published. It's called Chaos and Caliphate, Jihadis and the West in the Struggle for the Middle East. We reached him today in London. Patrick Coburn, welcome to the program. Thank you. Well, you're credited with being the first to recognize the rise of ISIS. What did you see that others missed? Well, it was very obvious, uh, really, from the end of uh, 2013 that ISIS was getting stronger by the day and already was operating in an area really from Baghdad right over to the Mediterranean. That's a very long distance. By the end of 2013, um, beginning of 2014, the ISIS captured Fallujah. That's only about 40 miles from Baghdad. And the Iraqi army couldn't get them out. But it was only with the fall of Mosul that uh, uh, people began to realize that this was a, a whole new type of movement and just how powerful it was. Your new book is about things falling apart, about fa states failing, Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, several other places. I think you count eight wars currently underway, underway in the Mideast and Africa. Let's start with the question, what held them together? They were held together uh, by escaping from European uh, empires. In the 1950s, you had Nasser, uh, who had came under attack from uh, Britain, France, and Israel during the uh, Suez Crisis of 1956. Uh, you had other uh, countries uh, exiting from uh, colonialism in Syria and Iraq and uh, Libya and elsewhere. But the new national states, uh, what kept them together? Well, originally they had a national sense of national purpose that they should uh, focus all political power uh, at the top to fend off uh, uh, their old colonial masters, that uh, they should uh, get ownership of their oil and uh, other resources. They turned into police states. Also, you know, failed states, I think, is a bit of a misnomer. It sort of sounds, it's like, it sounds as if they all fell because of their own uh, faults and mistakes. But places like Iraq and uh, Libya, the governments wouldn't have failed. Well, I'm not saying whether these are good or bad governments, unless they've been pushed from the outside, unless there'd been a U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. And... NATO launching an air war against Gaddafi in uh, 2011. But it is very striking if you go over from uh, Pakistan uh, in the east to Nigeria in the west that I think, yeah, there are eight wars going on, but there are at least three or four serious insurgencies as well in Sinai and southeast Turkey and uh, other places. There's a general sort of mass extinction, if you like, of sovereign independent states in the region, uh, which has been speeding up in the last few years. 
So it seems like uh, people in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and elsewhere will fight fiercely for their ethnic or religious uh, groups, but not so much for their national government and their national army. On the other hand, you quote an Iraqi Sunni a couple of years ago telling you the problem in Iraq is basically economic. He tells you, quote, if the Sunni were given proper jobs and pensions, the anger would ebb away. You think that's true? It's quite, it's not entirely true, but there's a lot to it, you know. Where the rebellion has been biggest, let's uh, in uh, not just Iraq, but in Syria, is being in these sort of impoverished rural areas of eastern Syria. Uh, people, you know, there live off really tea and bread is about half their diet. The um, rundown sort of areas on the outskirts of the cities. This is where the um, opposition, the armed opposition, uh, have their strongholds. And likewise in Iraq, the poor areas, uh, particularly the Sunni poor areas, this is where ISIS draws its recruits. Young men who have no jobs, everything's pretty hopeless. Any organi an organization which says that uh, the status quo is not only wrong but evil uh, is very appealing to these young men. Uh, we here in the States have been desperate to find some good guys in Syria, and the New York Times reported last fall about this autonomous Kurdish region called Rojava. Is that, am I pronouncing that right? Rojava, yeah. Rojava. Rojava, an autonomous Kurdish region in Syria, which, according to the New York Times, is led by militant feminist anarchists. Its constitution requires gender equality and religious freedom. Your new book has a report from Rojava. What, what was it like there? Could we have two, three, many Rojavas? <laughs> um, well, it's a lot better than the rest of the place, certainly of, of places that escaped the rule of Damascus and Assad, uh, bad though that was. In most of Syria, what succeeded it was just as bad, if not worse. You know, you had an authoritarian government uh, that used violence at all times, then you had an opposition that did exactly the same thing. The one place where things are a bit better is where these two million Kurds live in the northeast. Yeah, it is progressive. You see lots of uh, women soldiers around. Overall, this was an area that was, you know, deeply oppressed by Damascus in the past. Kurds weren't allowed to speak their own language. Uh, they were uh, sort of settlements of uh, Arabs brought in so that uh, things have got better there. But, but it's comparative, comparative. It's still a pretty dangerous place. And is it a good way to understand what's happening in the Middle East to go on this search for the good guys? I think that, you know, the... the looking for the good guys in Syria, the moderates. These are is generally, or Libya, uh, or Iraq, has generally been an act of fantasy. You know, the armed opposition in Syria is dominated by Islamists. I'm not saying that this is true of all the opponents of Assad, but it's true of the armed ones. They're all Islamists of uh, various description. So I think it could be very convenient for the U.S. and others if there was a third way if there was a third group of moderates, but they just don't exist, as the U.S. kept on discovering. 
you know, when it sent so-called moderate groups in, and they were either rounded up and killed or held prisoner, or they changed sides as soon as they got across the border. You write in your new book that in uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, and Yemen, opponents of the central government have all been sustained by aid from outside powers uh, in a way that you say probably makes them undefeatable. You say the effects of foreign intervention have been to prevent wars from ending in compromise through mutual exhaustion or by the victory of one side or another. Is there any reason to think that pattern is going to change in the foreseeable future? Not much, no. I mean, if one's trying to think of positive things that are happening in Syria, well, for the first time, there is, you know, we've had some real ceasefires, better than what we had before, not total, introduced by the U.S. and uh, Russia. So in a sense, you've got what used to be called the superpowers capable of enforcing uh, ceasefires, and they're able to do it because the people fighting within Syria, these groups can't keep on doing it without money and weapons and ammunition from outside, even though the Assad government almost certainly doesn't want to stop fighting. It is uh, susceptible to being pressured by the Russians. And likewise, on the op opposition side, the U.S. can put on a certain amount of pressure on Saudi Arabia and Turkey and so forth. So that's hopeful. But otherwise, no, you know, you have these very complicated disputes in which the outside contenders keep on pumping in money and guns. And that makes, makes it impossible for the war to end inside these countries. I think we should talk about Hillary Clinton a, a bit. What's your assessment of her as, as Secretary of State and as a presidential candidate? We know there was Libya. Uh, what exactly did she not understand about Libya? You know, what she didn't understand was very much what the State Department and most foreign governments didn't understand, which was the degree to which in the opposition to Gaddafi, if you really didn't like Gaddafi, okay, there's much to dislike about him, but the only alternative was really disintegration of Libya and an opposition that was primarily Islamist. That's what she got wrong. It's not what she's really accused of by the Republicans. Right. Uh, all this stuff about Benghazi is, to my mind, sort of concocted and exaggerated and so forth. You know, there's quite a lot that she could be blamed for, but it was really because she was carrying out a fairly mainstream, to my mind, foolish, but mainstream uh, policy there. I did the same thing in Syria. I mean, she didn't, it wasn't very original what she was proposing. So I think that what she's accused of is usually about the only thing she didn't do. Okay. I understand you're going back to Iraq next week. What will you be doing? What do you expect? To, what are you going to be looking at? I'll go to Erbil in northern Iraq. It's a good listening post to find out what's happening within a so-called Islamic State, what's happening in Mosul, what's happening in Raqqa. There's a certain number of refugees coming out of people who've uh, just been there. And if you talk to enough of them, you get some impression of where the Islamic State is going, how weak or strong it is, uh, you know, what, uh, what the condition is in Mosul. So I'll be looking at that. I'm looking at other things too, like, you know, the, the fall in the price of oil. People don't talk about it so much as Islamic State, but the fall in the price of oil has had a devastating effect on these areas. 
which is why obviously you have so many people becoming uh, migrants and trying to reach Europe and uh, drowning in the Aegean. Uh, last question. ISIS has the slogan, the Islamic State remains, the Islamic State expands. Do you think that's going to change in the foreseeable future? It's not expanding much at the moment, but it's sort of, it still remains. We still have all these optimistic statements coming out of the Pentagon and uh, Western politicians and saying, you know, they've size of that territory is down by 14 or 24 percent or something this is ridiculous in a place that's sort of desert or semi-desert doesn't matter if you lose a bit of territory uh, they have been losing some cities but this is mainly you know these cities have been bombed so there's nothing left so they're averting to guerrilla warfare so they're a very long way from being put out of business and their you know their enemies remain divided and uh, hate each other just as much, if not more, than they hate Islamic State. Patrick Coburn, his new book just published is Chaos and Caliphate, Jihadis and the West in the Struggle for the Middle East. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you so much. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Our recording engineer is Ernesto Orellano. Our engagement editor is Annie Shields. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Say that part of that part of